Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. So today we're going to jump into John uh, chapter 18, and I want to begin with a question that I'm going to finish on at the very end, but I want you to think about it off and on uh, as I'm talking as we progress through John 18. And, and, and the question is this, when, when you and I, and this is personal, I'll use it for me, use it for you, when you and I sin, when we fail, and I mean we fail, and it's something, and we gave into attempt at whatever it is. If you could, um, if you could picture Jesus' face, if He was looking at you right after you sinned, right after you failed, what expression do you think would be on His face as He looks at you and you just sinned? What would His expression be? Now, don't answer now, but just think about that, about how He would be looking at you. And what that expression would be, because he just saw you fail. You just sinned, my friend. So we'll go back to that at the very, very end of tonight's teaching. We'll do that. Now, Jesus now, as he's been walking, he's left the upper room, and he's walking in the nighttime across the southern side of Jerusalem, and he goes down across the Kidron Valley. He's going to go up to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you think about history, because the parallels, if we just start on the start of the parallels, it's, a, it's a really cool to look at it. But think about history. History begins in a garden of Eden, does it not? A man sins, Adam sins, and hands everything over to Satan. So it all begins there in the past. But then if you look at history in the future, I should say, you look at the future in the Bible, when we get to the new Jerusalem in the future, you find in the New Jerusalem that there is a river that flows there and there are, there's a tree of life on either side. So you see that. So you find another garden in the New Jerusalem. So there's a garden in our past and there's a garden in the future. But then also, as we're going to read tonight, you're going to see that there's a garden right in the middle and that's the garden of Gethsemane. And it's in that garden right there that Jesus goes to battle. Now, I want you to think about this. When Adam is tempted in the Garden of Eden and he, and he fails, when he hands everything over because of that sin, now when Jesus comes, Jesus goes to battle and he faces the, some of the biggest temptations. It's the beginning of the passion in that garden, in that place right there. So he's coming into... Um, He's coming into hostile territory. This is not easy. Some of you have played sports and you have gone, I've played sports growing up, and you have gone into hostile territory. You've gone onto other campuses. The students are hostile. Remember, I remember playing, uh, I played for Corona High School basketball and one night we played at Norda Vista High School. Everybody know where Norda Vista is? Wasn't a fun place back then. I don't know what it's like now. But we were in the bus and we were leaving and our coach told us, Take your, your bags. We have our bags with all our gear in there. Put it up against the windows because they're going to rock the bus right now. And so we had to put everything up against the windows just to get out of there without, you know, the potential of rocks hitting our, our bus. I remember that to this day. It was a very hostile environment. Jesus, when he comes to that moment in time, Adam has handed it all over. It's a very, very hostile environment. Now, let's think of first contrast in that respect or in the two gardens. 
when Adam, um, when he's in the garden, after he sins, he hides from God, does he not? Now watch the contrast of Jesus. Jesus comes along and he doesn't hide in a garden of Gethsemane. He bears his heart to the God the Father, right? When he's talking to God the Father, if there's another way. So you see the contrast there. And remember that Adam is called Adam and Jesus is called the last Adam. Not the second Adam, not an Adam to be, but he's the last Adam. So what that means is, and we find that in 1 Corinthians, what that means is, is that there's no other hope and there's no other way. If Jesus fails, that's it. So you know now that Jesus understands as he goes to that garden, this is like an eternal life and death situation. If he fails, then we're all doomed. It is a done deal. So he has to succeed. There is no other option. He is the last, the only final option. Because through one man sinned into the world and therefore all sinned. And there through one man came righteousness and holiness in the man Jesus Christ. So with that said, let's dig in now to, to John chapter 18. We're going to cover 23 verses tonight. So John 18, 1, and uh, you have your notes there if you're taking notes. If you're new to Bible study, there's always notes on the table out there. You can rush out and grab and come back if you want to. You don't have to. Uh, 18, 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, uh, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now, there's three bullet points, if you're taking notes, that I want you to focus on. Uh, first two are quick. The, the last one's a little bit longer. But the first one is, he went forth. And I think that's a really important statement. Never nullify any little statement that's being made here. Because what it's telling you and me is that this is going to be a very difficult time. Question, did Jesus retreat from difficult times? The answer is no. If you read your scriptures in Luke, when Luke describes Jesus traveling from the north part of Israel, heading to the south in Luke chapter 9, it says that he was, my New American Standard says, he was determined to get there. King James says he set his face like a flint. In other words, he's not backing off. He's going with this thing all the way. And so he went forth, and no matter how difficult this thing was going to be, he's going all the way. Now, the second bullet point in your notes is this, is that Gethsemane means, who knows what that means? It means oil press. It's a very similar. It means oil press. That's right. Now, here is the great uh, picture of the pressing and the pressure that Jesus is going to feel. Question, when Jesus is in there, he begins to sweat what? Blood. That's right. It's a, he, the capillaries under the skin under tremendous pressure will begin to pop, and it'll look like sweaty blood that's coming out. Jesus begins to sweat blood. And so now you see the pressure. Gethsemane means oil press. And if you've ever been to Israel, you've seen, I think there's one in Capernaum. You walk by one right in front of you. But it's these big rock things carved out with the big stone that rolls on it. They would put the olives in there, and they'd roll this thing around on the olives. It crushes the olives. In the middle, there's a hole, like almost like a tunnel, to drip down into a catch basin, and they would catch the oil there. And so you're watching this parallel now of Jesus' life and this oil press. Now, what's fascinating about that is this, that in the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus' life is crushed, 
Now the release of the Holy Spirit can come to our lives. It's a picture of, the very, of that very thing right there. Now, number three, the third bullet point is this. He crosses the brook Kidron. He crosses this brook right there. Now, Kidron means gloomy or dark. It means gloomy or dark. Now, here's what's fascinating about that is that um, when they would sacrifice during Passover, and this is Passover season that we're reading right there, um, Josephus, the um, Jewish historian, he wrote in his, in his books that, that one year there were, the, the, they sacrificed 256,000 animals. That's a lot, huh? Now, you think about all that, where's all that blood going, right? I mean, that's a lot of blood that's being spilled out there. Well, what would happen is, there's two things, um, at least two things, that uh, these priests, they had developed and had built these systems of, of canals leading down to catch basins where the blood would drip off the altar, go into these catch basins, go eventually, and they would sell the blood as fertilizer for gardens. And their gardens were very, were very plush. So you think about the blood of Jesus, it's creating gardens that are very plush, when, in, in a sense, that is. So, in one, so it's coming down there. But as the, water, as the blood went down, it didn't, everything, the blood didn't all fall into the catch basins. Some of it would make it down the hill because that's a lot, of, a lot of animals being sacrificed. Well, it would get down into the brook down there and it would stain it. So then you got some blood staining in there. Now think about that right there. Jesus now is crossing over that area and he is going to be the Passover lamb, is he not? So he's going to cross there and he will be the one that's the stain of his life, the stain of his blood that's going to bring about salvation for, uh, for, for humanity. But here's one that I want to give you that I really like. It's just a parallel. How many like parallels to the Old Testament? Anybody like that? I do. Good. Four of you, I'll give you it for you guys, okay? Now, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, King David, I didn't say just David, King David, he gets betrayed. Who betrays him? His son. Because as king, he's betrayed by his son. As just David, yeah, he's betrayed by King Saul. But as King David, he's betrayed by his son. What's his son's name? It's Absalom, that's right. So David, the king, is betrayed by his son, and David flees. As you read the fleeing of David, you find that David is crossing on that eastern side of Jerusalem and he's going up the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going up to. So that means he has to cross over that ravine, the Kidron. He has to cross over as he's, as he's leaving to get away from his son. As he leaves, crosses over there, his son eventually, Absalom, what is unique about him? He's got long hair and he's a real good looking guy. And so as he's doing his stuff, he gets his head caught, Absalom gets his head caught in a tree. His hair gets caught in a tree. And he's dangling there, and he cannot get his hair untangled from a tree. Joab, David's general, comes along, and David's instructions to Joab were, do not kill or harm my son. But what does Joab do? He kills him. He kills him. And so you find Absalom hanging from a tree, and he is killed there at that tree. Now let's think of the parallel. So King David, he's fleeing from a betrayer, crosses over the Kidron, and the betrayer eventually is killed hanging on a tree. Jesus, you catch it? Jesus is walking that night over the Kidron, going up the very same Mount of Olives. 
There is a betrayer. His name is Judas. And Judas will eventually hang himself and he will die. Josephus tells us that um, some of you remember your geography in Israel. Uh, remember the Dead Sea? And remember that? Okay. He hangs himself on the other side of the Dead Sea, on the, other, on the north uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea. So it's way, way far away from Jerusalem. And so he goes a long way away to hang himself. But the parallel is uncanny, right? It is, I love stuff like that. It's just so cool to see. Now, verse 2. Verse 2. Don't worry, we're going to get to 23 verses tonight, so don't panic, okay? Verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with the disciples. So Judas, he shows up in Gethsemane because, well, he knows that Jesus goes there a lot. And he's probably been there a lot with Jesus, right? Now, I don't know if I've told you this before as we te teach through John, um, and we probably have about five weeks left, six, I don't know, and then we'll go into the Old Testament book of Daniel because I really like that book. Um, but Judas shows up in Gethsemane because he knows that's where Jesus goes a lot. But you got to think of the night as things are unfolding. Judas, or I should say Jesus, when he sets up the Last Supper, who does he send to prepare it? James and John. I'm, I'm sorry, Peter and John. Peter and John. Peter and John. It's okay, you can correct me. You got me by a few minutes in age, it's okay. So, why does Jesus only send them to and not the rest of the disciples? They want them to know. He just want Judas to know where it's at. So when Judas leaves the Last Supper, he thinks Jesus is still where? At the Last Supper. And so when he goes and gets the soldiers and everybody else and he comes back, where do you think the first place that Judas comes to look for Jesus? The Last Supper. But by then, Jesus has split. He's gone and he's working his way up to Gethsemane. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus wants to make sure that he has time with his disciples. He's going to take them through the whole idea of they're fully clean. He was bathed and he's only to wash his feet to be fully clean. He's going to walk with them and give them that teaching along the way in the moonlight, all that really good teaching that he's got to give them these last instructions. He's got to get them all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's doing this whole thing. Now, you know what that tells me? That no matter what, that Jesus is in full control of the situation. Is he not? He's got full control. So here comes Judas. He comes back to the Last Supper. Jesus is not there. So he knows, I know where Jesus hangs out at. And this is the only other place because it's getting late. He's got to be up in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. And, so that, and that's where he finds him. Now, verse 3 and 4 says, Judas then having received the Roman cohort, that's about three to 600 soldiers, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, question. Do you think Jesus is caught off guard by Judas? There's just no way because it says Jesus knowing, right? He knows what's going on. Now, <clears throat> Jesus knows 
Question, have you ever asked Jesus a dumb question? I have. The question goes like this. Jesus, do you know what's going on in my life? Anyone? That's a dumb question, isn't it? Can you imagine Jesus going, oh, I really didn't even know what was going on. My, you should have told me, you know. I, I just didn't know. It says Jesus knowing. And so because Jesus knows, and here come all the torches and everything, he asks the question, whom do you seek? Does Jesus already know the answer to that? He knows the answer to that. But I just love the way he carries it on. It's, it's great. Now, verse 5 and 6 says, They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. First thing you need to notice, look in your Bible. When he says, I am he, which word is italicized? He. That means, remember, that it's not in the original manuscripts. It's put there to give you more understanding. So what Jesus says, he is saying, I am. That's big, isn't it? That's huge. Because for him to say, I am, he's saying, I'm the I am. I'm, you know, back in Exodus 3, I'm at, I'm at the burning bush. I am God. I, I, I'm the I am. Now, when he says this, what happens? My, my granddaughter, Lincoln, every so often before we're leaving, she wants to play Ring Around the Rosie. She's like two and a half, and we have to do Ring Around the Rosie. And you, when you have grandma and granddad and Gigi who are in their 60s, and you have to fall down, that's just not fun, okay? <laughs> that's not fun anymore. We all fall down. Oh, okay, we're going to fall down now. Well, he says, I am. And they all what? They all fall down. Now, not in your notes... But really quick, it might be prophetic. I'm not sure, but you could judge for yourself. I, I don't know if it is. Look over at, um, at Psalm 27, and we're going to read it quick and just jet right back. Old Testament Psalm 27. It's not in your notes, right? Okay, nobody answered me, so I guess... No. Oh, okay. thought you guys just didn't like me or something. Ignoring me and stuff like that. Now, look at this really, just real quick. Just a real quick thought on it, because they all fall down. Look at Psalm 27, look at verse 1 and 2. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What a great verse, huh? He's my light. He's my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Rhetorically, who? Nobody. Nada. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Rhetorically, no one. Verse 2. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they what? They stumbled and fell. They stumbled and fell. I don't know if that's a prophetic verse or not, but it sure sounds like one, huh? They come and they just fall down. Now, let's get back over here. Now, let's, um, <clears throat> let me talk about this whole I am and, and, and they fall down. It's almost like there, there's this... Um, there's this moment in the Old Testament where the priests are ministering in the, in the temple and the Shekinah glory comes down. If you don't know what the Shekinah glory is, that's like the cloud that came down when they're passing through the desert with Moses. That's called the Shekinah glory. There's a moment in time in the Old Testament where the priests are ministering in the temple and the Shekinah glory comes down, fills the temple. The thick cloud comes down. What happens to the priests? They fall down. They fall down. 
because the power of God, the Shekinah glory is so overpowered, they just fall down. Now, I, I've, I, I grew up in Pentecostal circles in my faith. I got saved at 23. And um, I do believe people, they call it slain in the spirit, or you can call it whatever you want. I do believe the power of God can knock you over. I, 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 I've seen these things. Now, have I ever been knocked over? No, I never have. Um, I, they tried to push me over one time. I'm not kidding. And I put my foot back and I go, no, if I'm going down, it's by the power of God, not by the power of your hand, okay? Because it's like, if it's going to be, it's going to be real. And that's it. I didn't want to be pushed over because I'd watched too many people pushed over, but I've seen plenty of people go down under the power of God. Now, it was one night, this is the best illustration I can give you of this, is that uh, one night, this is like, it's got to be 40 years ago. We were in this small little Bible study. There's a bunch of us young people in there, and we were praying for each other. And one young man comes up, and we're praying for him, and he just goes, boom, and there's a coffee table behind him. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. He goes back his head as he just falls, bam! And he's laying there, and I thought, we killed him. (laughs) We, We killed him. A few seconds go by, he gets up like nothing. He didn't even have a headache. He didn't have a bruise. It was like, are you kidding me? Let me check the back of your head. But that just, that was my, my experience in that when God truly knocks you over, you could slam your head against anything. But it's God who catches you. When it's truly God that knocks you over. Amen to that one right there? Amen. Now, look back at um, verse 5. And they say, they answered him, Jesus, whom do you seek? What do they say? <coughs> what do they say? Jesus of Nazarene, right? Okay, why do they say that? Why is he called Jesus of Nazareth? I got to take a drink because I feel like I'm going to cough or something. It's tickly. Why do they call him Jesus of Nazareth? Because when Joseph... Long, let me give you a quick way around. When Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, so Jesus is not killed as a, as a two, two years and under. When they come back, where do they come back and settle? In Nazareth. So where does Jesus grow up at? In Nazareth. But it goes deeper than that. Because Jesus, remember, is called, remember the little children when Jesus comes in, what were they calling Jesus one day? The son of what? Son of David. And then the Pharisees don't like that. Because the son of David, that's a title. That's a messianic title. It means here the Messiah. And they're telling you, stop the kids. Don't, don't have them call them that. And so Jesus is called the son of David. Now, when you start putting all the pieces together, Nazareth is an interesting word because it's the word netzer. And it means branch. Now, hold that thought in your mind. So Jesus is from branch. He's from branch town. Now, the ancestors, so when Mary and Joseph, when they have to go, to Bethlehem, because Joseph is from, and they're from that area of Nazareth, they have to register for the census over in Bethlehem, right? They got to travel back. But they're living in Nazareth, and she's pregnant. They've got to go there because the ancestors, they're from the line of King David. And that's where David's ancestors, where David's from. He's a Bethlehem man. He's from there. And so they got to go there. So Jesus not only grew up in Nazareth, but that's where all of, uh, many, not all, many of David's ancestors came and settled in Nazareth. And so here's Jesus growing up as the son of David in Branchtown. 
Now, when you start thinking about all that, and this is where I, I think it's really cool, keep your finger here and go to your Old Testament, go to Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll just hit it and ju- jump right back. So he's from Branchtown, ancestors of King David, settled in Branchtown in Nazareth. Now watch this. When you're there in, in, in Isaiah 11, say, I'm there. <clears throat> okay. Uh, it says in verse 1, Then a shoot, this is a messianic verse here, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? He's the father of King David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Ah, all of a sudden now you see the word branch come into play. What is Nazareth, the idea of that word again? Branch. branch. It's branch town. So a branch will shoot forth. This is the ancestor of Jesus Christ right here. Now go to the Messianic chapter of Isaiah 53. So you have this branch springing forth. Now go to Isaiah 53, the great Messianic chapter. And when you're there, say, I'm there. And look at verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is totally talking about Jesus the Messiah, prophetically written down 700 years before the fact. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, he is called in here the root. Over in Isaiah 11, he's called the branch. Now look up at me. He's called the root. And then he's called the branch. The root is the beginning, is it not? And the branch is the end. Okay, you take that idea and you go to Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 and chapter 2 verse 8, you find that Jesus is called the beginning and the and the end and the end. And so you see how the Bible puts all these things together? I just think it's so cool the way it says that. Anybody think that cool besides me? Say amen. Okay, good. Somebody's on the same page. Good. Let's go back to uh, John chapter 18. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. It says, Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? Now, if he asked again, whom do you seek, would you answer? <laughs> After you got knocked down once, right? I'd be like, you answer. No, you answer, you know. I'd be like, I'm not sure. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. He italicized. He said it again, I am. So if you seek me, let these go what? Their way. Now, Jesus has just said then, I'm him. I'll surrender to you. Let the rest go their own way. In other words, let my disciples go. Peter, you can go. Does Peter go his own way? No, he's going to prove what he said earlier. I am never going to deny you or fail you, right? (laughs) Bad move on Peter's part. Because this will set forth an evening that Peter is going to regret. Here's what I like. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he makes a decision that sets forth damnation to all mankind. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, makes a decision that sets forth salvation for all mankind. So you see a decision in each of these gardens that really affects mankind. But Peter, he's going to show his loyalty. Let's see as we progress, right? Verse 9. To fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That's an interesting time because Jesus says, I lost none of those you gave me. He did lose one, so therefore I must assume by Jesus' words that Judas was never really one of them. 
that Judas was never really a saved person in that sense. Verse 10, Simon Peter then, here he goes, because you know, he's got it down. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now, let's draw three, one, two, three, three things from these verses right here. The first thing you need to notice is this. Peter betrays his name, his own name. Peter betrays his own name. Do you know what the word Peter means? Or Simon, I should say his name is Simon. Simon means to hear. What does he cut off? The guy's hearing. How, is it, how easy is it for any of us, myself included, to cut off the hearing of someone to hear the gospel by the way we act, by what we do? We gotta be watching, watch, we gotta be wise with those things. Now, the second bullet point is this Jesus graces the earless man. How do you know? What does Jesus do with the ear? He picks it up and he puts it back on the guy, right? How many would like to see that one? And you say, well, how could he do that? Well, let me see. He created the whole universe. <laughs> yeah, that would be a tough one to put an ear back on, you know. So, question. Does the man deserve the grace? He's come with the enemy. He's come to us. He doesn't deserve it. And what does Jesus do? He gives him grace. Don't you love that about God? I love that about God. Now, the third thing is, Jesus graces Peter. Now, how so? Because if, if he didn't put that ear back on, guess what? Instead of three crosses that day, how many crosses would there be? There'd be four. Peter'd be up on a cross. It'd be Jesus, you know, the sign says King of the Jews, and Peter over there saying, bonehead follower of Jesus, you know. <laughs> it's what it, it, it would be like that. Now, question. Does Jesus, when Peter starts to fight, does, does Jesus need Peter's help? No, because in Luke, Jesus, Luke writes that Jesus said, hey, whoa, 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 guys, I, I can call 12 legions of angels. A legion is three to 6,000 soldiers. You say it's 6,000. He goes, I can call down 72,000 angels right now. Right now. And that's not even all of them. But I could do it right now. So I don't need any help whatsoever from you, Peter. Just let it go. Let it go. Now, the question I would ask is this. Why does Peter fail that night? Because all you have to do is study his life and you will know why he failed. It's the same reason probably why we fail at times. Now, Jesus, <clears throat> when he tells Peter something, <clears throat> he's, and, he, and he told Peter, you're going to fail me. Does Peter go, oh, I accept that, or does he argue with Jesus? Argue. Never argue with Jesus. <laughs> Don't argue with them. Just, okay, you're right. I'm going to fail. I don't know how, but it's going to happen. I got it, okay? So the first step we find is he's arguing with Jesus. And then the next thing we see, Jesus, he makes a mistake on. Jesus says, Peter and the gang, remain here. I'm going to go there and pray. You guys remain here and keep watching me. In other words, you pray too. What does Peter do? Fall asleep. Isn't it weird that you, my phone's off, but isn't it weird that we could be on our phone reading all kinds of stuff and articles and we're wide awake? But then we put it away and we open up that Bible. You ever notice that? That's a spiritual battle. That's a spiritual thing going on. In that moment, Peter fell asleep and Jesus said, stay awake with me. And then the third mistake Peter makes is he pulls out a dagger. He's imitating the enemy because I'm sure they came with swords. 
So now we find he's arguing with Jesus. He's falling asleep when he should be praying, and he's imitating the enemy. Oh, my gosh. And so now you see the road that he took to fail. Now, some of you in your mind, you're thinking this. Those of you who know a little bit more, you study a little bit longer. You know that earlier in the story, I think Luke is the one who writes it, that Peter pulls out two swords at a certain point. And Jesus says, that's enough. That's good enough. And so the question somebody would ask now is like, well, Jesus said that's good enough, and now why are you using a sword? I'd ask that question. But the, the issue is this. Peter's misunderstanding what Jesus meant by that. I would have misunderstood. But Peter needs to understand, and he's learning the hard way, that you're not going to advance the kingdom of God with physical swords. You will be yielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Peter. That's how it's going to work. And Peter is learning the hard way that night. That's the way you do it. Now, chapter 18, verse 12. It says, So the Roman court, here they go, they got him. So the Roman court and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That's an amazing statement right there. Um, okay, so a, a few things we're going to get into here. But first, let me before I say the few things that are bullet points in your notes, let me say this. This is the first trial. There will be six. This is an informal trial. This is before and at the residence of Annas. Annas was the high priest 15 years before this time. His son, our son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the current high priest. Annas really wants to get rid of Jesus, doesn't like Jesus. But Annas controls everything, including the Temple Mount, where he was making all kinds of money on that Temple Mount. Jesus came to the Temple Mount, remember? And he comes along, and he overturns the table of the money changers. They were making a lot of money there. And he probably lets all the sheep go free because they're making money off that too. He's doing all that. And so that really, really upset Annas. Jesus didn't do it. I believe he did it twice. John 2 and Mark 11. He did it once at the beginning and once at the end of his three-year ministry. And so Annas really, really doesn't like Jesus because he's cost him a lot of money because he's the crime boss of the Temple Mount. And so here's the first trial. It's informal. Now, Caiaphas, the son-in-law, who's the current high priest, here's what I love about archaeology because archaeology keeps proving the Bible true. They have found the ossuary of Caiaphas. Ossuary is just a fancy word for bone box. That's all it is. And it's a very ornate box, and they found his in southern Jerusalem there about 1990. And a bone box is when a relative would die, you'd wrap them up strips of cloth, put them in the tomb like they did Jesus. And then about a year or two later, you go back in when it's just bones. You take the bones, and you put them in these bone boxes. You, you could fit it in there. Take the bone box, and you put it in the family tomb. And that's what you did. They found they were doing some building whatever and went in, in, in Israel. If when they're building anything and they hit something that looks like it's from antiquity, all building stops because they want to know what that is. Well, they found the ossuary of Caiaphas. He really did live. He really did exist. And there are so many things that they have found that prove the Bible to be true. Isn't that a cool thing right there? I just like stuff like that. Now, a few things. Let's read verse 15, 16. Simon Peter was following Jesus. 
And so was another disciple. Who do you think the other disciple is? It's probably John, because John's the writer. He's not going to say, and I was following. No, and he says another. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. So John knows the high priest. And he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So Peter can't come in, doesn't know the people. John says, I'll, I'll get you in. And he, and he gets him in. So here's a couple things. And I forgot to add a third bullet point, and I'll just tell you what it is when I get there. The first thing is this, and he knows. Peter is walking into temptation. He's walking right into it. Earlier, Jesus told them, I surrender, let these go their way, right? But Peter says, I'm going to prove to Jesus, I am not going to deny him. And he walks right into the temptation. First mistake. Look at verse 17. Here comes the next mistake. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of his man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Second Second thing, Peter denies identification with Jesus. Peter denies, in your notes, identification with Jesus. Now he's making serious mistakes now. He's walking in temptation. He's denying identification with Jesus. And by the way, when you read these things, try not to get um, tunnel vision where you think it's a certain way. What if the young girl, when she came up to him and said, you were with Jesus, right? What if instead of thinking that she said, you're with Jesus, huh? what if she said, you're with Jesus? Huh? What if she was a seeker and wanted to know about Jesus? See, we always think it's the other way, huh? But what if she was a seeker? What if she wanted to know what if she's like, you could tell me about him. We could tell, you could tell me about him. But Peter said, I don't even know the guy. I don't even know him. Now, verse 18. Here comes the third mistake. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire. That charcoal fire, not this particular, but another one will come into play in a few weeks. Very, very important. For it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So the third mistake he makes is he's warming himself in the enemy's fire, correct? Okay, so now we see he's walking in temptation. He, he's denying his identification with Jesus and he's warming himself in the enemy's fire. Okay, now watch. Because this is really cool. Look at verse 15. Look in your Bible, look at verse 15. Now, what is Peter doing? What's he doing? He's walking. Right? Right? If he's following, he's walking, right? Okay, good. Look at verse 18. What's he doing? What? Oh, he's standing. So first he's walking, and now he's standing, right? Okay, if you went back into Luke's gospel, Luke will describe it in Luke twenty-two fifty-five. that when he gets to that charcoal fire, he stands, but then he what? Then he sits. So he's walking. It's specifically telling us. Then he's standing, and then eventually... He sits by that enemy fire right there. Now, let's take that idea right there and let's turn back to Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1. Psalm 1 and verse 1. 
It's one of the great psalms. There's so many good ones. Okay, when you're there, say I'm there. Okay, now watch this. How blessed is the man who does not, who does not what? Walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Is that wild or what? By the way, a scoffer is a criticizer. Get away from criticizers all the time. You don't want to be in a seat of criticizers. But you see it right there? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, meaning you're staying with sinners now, nor sit in the seat of criticizers. And then you see in Peter's life from Scripture that he's walking, then he stands right there in the enemy's fire, then he sits right there in the enemy's fire. And it leads to his downfall. It leads to his downfall. And it all started because he walked in the wrong direction. Now, back to John chapter 18. Make sense? Okay, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse uh, 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So now they're questioning him in this informal trial. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. In other words, hey, you got any witnesses? You got anybody here that can testify that I'm doing something wrong? And the answer is no. And this is going to be a repeated theme as the trials progress. There's really nobody that can testify anything bad against them. I mean, they bring liars, but, you know, that works. Verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Whoa! Now there's violence in the courtroom, right? And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Now, here's my thought. What if you were that officer, and you're the one who struck Jesus, and you never became a Christian? You never turn your life over to Christ. And then you die. And then one day you're standing right before who? Jesus. Jesus. Oh my gosh. I struck the creator of the universe. Can you imagine? Man, I can't imagine. Now verse 23. Our last verse, then I'll go back to the issue at the beginning. Jesus answered him. If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly... Why do you strike me? It's logical, right? If I said something wrong, you know, I didn't. So why, why are you hitting me? Okay. So let's go back. We'll close with this idea that we began, in, we began with. In the garden of Gethsemane, that night, you'll find guilt and you'll find grace. Don't we struggle with those? Yes. Say yes, please. Yes. We struggle with it. Peter is guilty of denying. Judas is guilty of betraying. Correct? The mob, the crowd, is guilty of rejecting. Is Jesus still gracious? Yeah, he's still gracious. So I I have the question again. In your notes, I wrote the wrong verse down at the very end, that Luke verse. So the right verse is not verse 30, 20, 32. It should be verse 61, just so you know. That's the third mistake I've ever made in my life, Andy Jacobson. So. 
So he gives them grace, even though they messed up, all messed up bad. Now, turn to Luke. You're not coming back here. Just a little bit to the left. Luke 22. Look at verse 61. We're going to look at when Peter denies and the cock crows. When it happens, it says this. As soon as he denies, the Lord turned. This is Jesus. Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Okay, so here's here's the question I want to close with. Because we battle with guilt and grace. I asked you the question, when you fail, when you sin, and if Jesus, if you could see Jesus' face in that moment looking at you and you just sin, what's his expression? What expression do you conjure up in your mind so Peter sins. And somehow, there's some way that Jesus saw him through the window of a house where, and Jesus turns and looks at him. And Peter looks at Jesus. In your mind, what expression is on Jesus' face? Because that's a big deal, isn't it? If you think Jesus is walking around disappointed and you're like, dummy you'd be wrong he's got the face of grace and you always got to remember that you always got to remember that how many people read those verses and think Jesus probably looked at them like oh my gosh he didn't do that he gave grace and he gives you grace so it's important that we understand the expression that Jesus probably gave because that helps us understand God uh, more perfectly. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all these things that we get to glean from this word, God. Next week, we get to continue in the trials. They're so interesting. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us tonight. Thank you that you give us grace. We fail and you give us grace. And thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.